All right, y'all. Happy Friday the 13th. Yes, it's Friday the 13th, but I'm not superstitious. I'm here in the studio with my fingers crossed behind my back, but I'm not superstitious. It's September the 13th, 2019, and uh, we've got quite a show lined up for you today. We're going to start out having a discussion with three gay elected officials. We've got the mayor of Emeryville. That's where Pixar is, uh, way up in Northern California. John Bowders, he's been a guest on the show. He co-hosted with me once when we interviewed uh, Congressman Barney Frank. Uh, he's going to be calling in from Emeryville. And we've got Jeff Kors, council member from Palm Springs, California, also calling in simultaneously. We're going to try to have a menage a trois here on the radio. We've never done it before. Jason is like my producer extraordinaire. He's going to figure it out, right, Jay? You're going to figure it out. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> He's going to figure out how to get three of us on the air at the same time. So three gay electeds, we're going to talk about climate change, and we're going to talk about environmental issues and sustainability, and going to have a conversation about that from the perspective of the cities. And then after that, we've got Tim Mendelson coming on. Tim is the executive director of the Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation. Elizabeth Taylor is Hollywood royalty. She is, uh, I mean, was an extraordinary woman, but when AIDS had she came to the defense of her buddy Rock Hudson and she was the one that went up to Capitol Hill and screamed at the U.S. Congress to do something and uh, she will ever be remembered as Dame Elizabeth Taylor and one of the angels in the epidemic and her foundation carries on her work uh, for her. Uh, lifetime achievement, even beyond death, she's still out there working for people with HIV and a hero to the LGBT community. So thank you, Elizabeth. We'll be talking to Tim Mendelson from the foundation. And then we're going to finish up uh, talking to Jimmy Palmieri and David Vanderbilt, two guys who are very actively involved in recovery issues because the crystal meth uh, overdoses are continuing and it's because they're laced with fentanyl. And uh, it is a problem. And um, what we know is that... Uh, uh, I don't know if you all caught the news this morning, but my friend Eddie Money uh, passed away. Eddie, of course, known for his uh, hit uh, Two Tickets to Paradise, and, uh, and, uh, and he was an extraordinary legend on West Hollywood Sunset Strip. He swore me in as mayor last year. He did the, the duty to swear me in under oath, and um, he was just a treasured asset. All over the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood, Eddie Money, dead at 70, um, of cancer. And, man, we are going to miss him. I wanted to, to play his song for you here, but our, we're having a tech difficulty here in the control booth. We're not able to play Eddie Money. I could sing it for you, but it won't sound as good as Eddie's raspy baritone voice. So uh, rest in peace, my friend Eddie. But uh, Eddie, uh, sadly... Uh, had an overdose of fentanyl back in 1981 and uh, was like the first rocker to have that happen. So the fact that we're focusing on met fentanyl today uh, is... Uh is appropriate uh, given that Eddie passed. So let's start up our conversation with our, our gay electeds. We're going to bring in Mayor John Bowders from Emeryville and Councilmember Jeff Kors from Palm Springs. Let's do a roll call. John, are you on the phone? I'm here. There's John Bowders. Jeff Kors, are you on the phone? I'm here, John. Oh, my God. Three gay electeds uh, on the phone at the same time. Let's redecorate something, anything. <laughs> <laughs> exactly the planet <laughs> there you go nice segue mr Coors. nice segue uh, so guys the trump administration pulled us out of the paris accord uh, on issues around climate change and sustainability but it doesn't mean that the cities and the states can't uh fill in the void and that's the discussion we wanted to have today so we got a northerner we got a southerner i don't know i, I guess beauty before age of course you're both beautiful but you know bowders is younger so maybe we'll let uh, bowders go first <laughs> <laughs> Mayor Bowders, what are you all doing up in Emeryville, California, around environmental and sustainability issues? Well, John, thanks for having me on the show. And just as a reminder, John, um, I passed my PR as mayor off to my colleague, um, Mayor Medina, in January. So I'm just the council member these days. But um, we're doing a lot of uh, interesting things up in Emeryville. Um you know, just to touch at a high level on a few of them, and I'm sure you'll come back with some questions. We've we've had a very aggressive climate action plan. We call it uh, Climate Action Plan 2.0. It built off of our first our first successful one from 2008. Um, we were the first city in the Bay Area and Northern California to come in line with um, the state's targets and goals around climate action, um, and we've received a number of awards. The um, Institute for Local Governments gave us the Beacon Award for overall sustainability practices. 
Uh, we're doing things. We've had a 35% reduction in solid waste for the last 15 years from our city, despite the fact that we've um, about added 35% of the population in the same period of time. Um, we've got everything from vegetated stormwater ordinances. We've increased uh, street trees by over 20%. Um, as you mentioned, we joined the U.S. Compact of Mayors um, to, to basically follow through with the Paris Accords. Um, we've done a number of things in the development space. We prioritize and promote and incentivize net zero energy and new buildings and development. We have gold lead standards for our residential complexes. Um, I could go on and on. We joined a East Bay Community Energy and are a community choice aggregate provider of uh, renewable energy to our residents and our city facilities. Um, and we're on target um, in most areas to um, meet all of the 2030 uh, goals for GHG reduction. Wow. John, that's extraordinary. That's really, really fantastic. My producer's telling me we got to take a three-minute uh, commercial break. When we come back, we'll listen to Jeff Kors about what's happening in Palm Springs and maybe the mouth of the South. Yours truly will chime in as well. So, all right, gang, we'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to Sidebar with John Duran here on Channel Q. Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back, gang. Thanks for tuning in. We are having a conversation with three gay electeds today. Uh, John Bowders, uh, council member from Emeryville, California, and Jeff Kors, council member from Palm Springs, California. And right before we took the break, uh, John Bowders was describing his city's approach. And I want to hear from Jeff Kors out in the desert, because I imagine that the tree plan, when the, the temperature is an average 110 degrees every day, is a little different than the tree plan for Northern California. Jeff, what are you all doing out in the desert? Uh, sure. And we're doing a lot of uh, similar programs that Emeryville's doing. It's great to hear about them. You know, we adopted when uh, Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, we joined uh, the mayor's covenant to um, enact policies to achieve it, um, despite objections from our mayor who voted against it, saying it was partisanship. And uh, But we did pass it uh, three to two, and now we um, have really good sustainability plan for the city that has been up, um, updated and aggressive goals. We have a very active sustainability commission in Palm Springs. So some of the things we're doing recently, um, actually two years ago, we adopted requirements that almost 90% of all new home construction has to have solar power, not just be solar ready. And we're moving to 100% solar uh, this year. Our community choice aggregation program, and I, I'm vice chair of that for the region, Palm Springs next year will be the first and only city in the Inland Empire in Coachella Valley to be 100% carbon-free power, and that'll be the default option for all customers. And based on our polling, we expect over 90% of all residents and businesses to use 100% carbon-free power starting next year. So I'm really excited about that program because that's going to have a real impact. Um, and it's the one thing we can do that can have such a tremendous impact. We're also finalizing our... Um, ordinance that will ban single-use plastic, styrofoam, and straws. And that's been moving through our sustainability commission, and we've been meeting with business leaders, and we've had some great restaurants who have tried out alternatives and priced them out. So they're going to do a demonstration of what's worked, what hasn't, and what's most cost-effective. So I think all those things are just a few of the things we're doing. Uh, we have a big turf buyback program that's been very successful in the past, and it's a real priority. Obviously, we live in the desert, but we need to take care of our climate as much as everyone. And more importantly, we all have to do our part because we're in a climate crisis in this country and in the world. Yeah, Jeff, I, you know, in West Hollywood, I, I guess I'll focus on the issue of housing for a second because California, we're about 4 million housing units short. And so one of the issues, I think the challenges for all three of us is how do we respond to developing new housing, both market rate and affordable, in the midst of uh, a lot of uh, anti-development forces that are out there that just say no more building, no more people, we, we can't accommodate, there's not enough water, there's not enough resources, there's not enough power. Uh, I mean, what do you guys do to try to, to balance between the demand that we have to build more infrastructure, more housing, 
up against the environmental impacts that are caused by that development. Jeff, I guess I'll start with you, and then we'll go to John. Uh, well, you know, first of all, one of the things about building new housing, and we heard it a lot when we were doing our solar ordinance, was it was going to add costs, and there was a move that you know middle to low income housing would be exempt. But when you actually look at the studies and do the math, if you buy a home and no matter what income level, and it includes solar in the mortgage, it's less expensive than the mortgage with a regular utility bill monthly. So given how much money solar can save in the long run, it actually is very cost effective. And if you look at a lot of the housing developments, especially the affordable ones, the legally affordable low-income housing projects, they're all very green because in the long run that saves money. So I think we really need to educate folks that building green and doing the right thing is not going to cost homeowners and low-income people more money. But more importantly, you know, this state has a homeless crisis, and we have not built enough housing for demand. So the other option is we just let rents go double digits all over the state, and more and more people are living on the streets, and that's unacceptable. So we need to build. We need to do it smartly. We need to do it green, so we're protecting the planet. But every city needs to do the part, and I think that's the message from the governor in their new housing plan is every city is going to have to do their part because it just can't be the cities that are more progressive that want to make sure we're housing people who need housing. It needs to be everyone. John Bowders, what about up in Emeryville? How are you, how are you doing the balance between uh, housing demand and environmental impacts? Yeah, Emeryville, so this is a great question, John. It's really on point for the issue of climate change. Um, and it's super important for the reasons Jeff just discussed. You know, Emeryville is a one-square-mile city. I like to say we're the meat in the Berkeley-Oakland sandwich. Um, we're, we're squished right along the edge of the bay at the foot of the Bay Bridge, and we're an old industrial town. And so um, that one-square-mile space, um, you really don't have the opportunity to do much other than build up. It's a brownfields program. And um, if we're really serious about minimizing human impact on climate change, one of the things, the biggest contributor um, really is transportation emissions. And when we have an economy that centralizes jobs, in the case of the Bay Area, in San Francisco and parts of Oakland and San Jose, um, but people are doing these super commutes of two to two hours plus in each direction, um, Greenfield's development, putting housing out further into pasture land for people to get into carbon guzzling vehicles, um, emitting vehicles is not going to be a solution that's good for anyone. And so in Emeryville, we've done a number of things. Um, I, I think we're probably on the front end of being pragmatic about some of this stuff, but we, we build up, we build dense urban housing. Um, we make sure we're doing a lot right now to innovate transportation in our city. So um, the city council supported my request from last year, um, and we're removing all the street parking on one of our main transit corridors, and we're putting in a two-way cycle track. We're removing transit traffic lanes to put in tra- transit-only lanes um, to encourage people to take the bus. When they see the bus whiz by, they ask themselves why they're in a car. Um, and, you know, one of the important issues that can get left behind in this discussion is social justice and equity. And so last year in Emeryville, um, we, we ran a measure. Measure C was kind of my... Um, the crown jewel of what I tried to do as mayor last year was a $50 million affordable housing bond and voters passed it by a 73% threshold. Um, and we're using that money to leverage other money to ensure that we do placekeeping for people who've traditionally uh, lived here, people of color and others um, of different economic means so that the um, transportation systems that serve everyone are equitably available to all um, that we keep our community diverse. And we, we actually have, um, kind of a vibrant, livable environment. And so these things can be done. It takes political will. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, misconceptions about the impact of land use around transit and, and how that impacts the environment. Um, when you build a, a transit station, the, the land value goes up. That usually makes it only accessible to higher income people. It becomes a high rent apartment or condo building. And those are people who don't give up their car. Um, lower income people will give up a car if you build affordable units within a quarter mile of a transit hub. And so we have to do a balance um, in ensuring and protecting that we, we build affordable um, on transit lines. We upzoned along San Pablo Avenue, our main, our main street, if you will. Um, we upzoned along that space and we're building 100% affordable housing. We're about to open um, Estrella Vista, which is going to be 87 units of mostly two to four bedroom um, below market rate units families um, in about a month now. And 
that's that's the direction we're going. We're we're kind of um, we kind of take pride in being the leader on affordable housing and dense housing development in the East Bay, and we're happy other cities are coming along. But as Jeff said, it really can't fall to just progressive communities to do this. There needs to be um, guidance from the state uh, to to kind of curb policies that are exacerbating climate change by generating sprawl. You know, there's a, a good point, John, uh, transit and transportation. So, Jeff, let me ask, when you've got five desert cities with five separate municipal governments spread out over 100 square miles, which I think is what you have in the Coachella Valley, how do you guys coordinate transit and transportation systems with so many different levels of government having to interact? Sure. And there, there are nine nine cities uh, wow. in the Coachella Valley. Wow. I thought it was five. So nine, even more complicated. Um, and, you know, but we work with, a, we have a Coachella Valley Association of Governments, so we all work regularly together. Sunline, which is the bus entity, has representatives from each city as their board members. So it's very coordinated. Transit has to be coordinated. Palm Springs does some additional transit. We have our buzz trolley, uh, similar to trolley West Hollywood has had. Um, and that's, you know, a free service, which really helps get people not to use their cars as much, um, just in Palm Springs. But valley-wide transportation is run that way. As far as affordable housing and things along those lines, that's really city by city. Wow. Guys, you're not going to believe this, but we just went through 10 minutes of policy. (laughs) I could go probably another 30 with the two of you. I I just want our listeners to know this shows you that gay men can actually sit around and talk about important public policy issues besides musicals and what we're going to wear to Folsom. There you go. (laughs) A little deeper than all that. John and Jeff, we have to say goodbye, but I want to thank you both for coming on. You've both been guests previously, and I always love hearing it. Jeff, I know Palm Springs Pride is coming up, so maybe uh, next month we can have you on to talk all about Palm Springs Pride. Well, John, I hope you'll be coming out for Palm Springs Pride and marching with my contingent since I'm up for election this year. And if I win, I'll be mayor next oh, year. Oh, I'll, I'll so cover, come out. I will cover the notorious flank for you. Got it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Councilmember Jeff Corris from Palm Springs, Councilmember John Bowders from Emeryville. Thank you both for tuning in. And, gang, thanks for being with us here on Sidebar with John Duran on Channel Q. Thanks, John. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now we're going to take a little uh, track down memory lane because uh, some of you may already know this some of you may not but dame elizabeth taylor Uh, the actress, is a true heroine to the LGBT community for the extraordinary work that she did in her lifetime, Uh, not just as Cleopatra, not just as a child actress uh, all the way up to the head uh, of uh, Oscar winner, but uh, when the AIDS epidemic hit, she stepped into the void and was a true champion for us. And we're really uh, grateful today to have two people from the Elizabeth Taylor Foundation joining us. Tim Mendelson, who's an officer with the organization. Welcome, Tim. Hello, thank you. And we've got Zach Marquez, uh, who's uh, Communications and Development from the Foundation. Welcome, Hi. Zach. Good to have you both here. Thanks. 
Tim, let's um, let's give a little history then about Elizabeth's involvement with the community and what happened and uh, before, because I think a lot of people don't really know the story of what happened in the eighties. I mean, I do because I was there. You were there. <laughs> I was. Yeah. Zach may have no. Zach probably was not in there in the eighties. No. Jason was definitely not there in the eighties. All right. So let's give a little like four one one on that. Well, I mean, Elizabeth. You know, Elizabeth saw what was happening. You know, she was friends with people in the gay community, uh, you know, whether they were people that were working on film sets with her because she'd grown up in the movie business and uh, and, and lived her whole life that way. Um, so a lot of creative people. Uh, and then suddenly there was this thing happening specifically in the gay community where people were dying of, you know, once they had a name of AIDS. and. And Elizabeth could see that nobody was doing anything. And, you know, she was getting frustrated. And she finally said to herself, and this is her quote, she looked in the mirror and she said, bitch, do something yourself. I say that every morning. (laughs) (laughs) So I start my day. And and she did. And she did. did. So she she headed the first... um, uh, major AIDS fundraiser, which was done in Los Angeles by commitment uh, by um, it's called Commitment to Life, it right. was AIDS Project Los Angeles. Yes. She she started to work on that event, and they couldn't sell tickets before she put her name to it. And, you know, realizing that Elizabeth was one of the most famous people in the entire world mm-hmm. at that time, for all uh, time, and for all time. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you have to go back and and be in that time to understand it, uh, really. But um, but she just was it, you know. The the media was different then. That we didn't have the internet, we didn't have all this cable television. There just weren't that many outlets, and Elizabeth dominated everything, starting from you know the fifties and particularly in the sixties and seventies, and it just continued. You know, when she did Cleopatra, there was so much scandal and intrigue, and right. the world just paid attention. What to What happened to Virginia Woolf? Her four marriages to Richard Burton. I mean, no, two. <laughs> 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 but and she married a U.S. senator. She I did. Mean, she, she was did. like the public eye. I don't even know there's an equivalent. I'd say a Kardashian but I've never seen a Kardashian in my life. But, I mean, she hmm. was completely the focus of the, na- the nation's attention. Exactly. Yeah. The world's attention. So, yeah. anyway, she was in a unique position to to shift that spotlight that had been on her since she did National Velvet at the age of 12 to this, this horrible situation that was happening that really the government didn't want to deal with, the right. public didn't want to deal with. It was just... it w- and, and the gay community at that time, I mean, we weren't organized... Uh, because that's not how we existed. Right. You know, we have become organized through through AIDS. Yeah, I tell people that before AIDS, the center was one big room with two phones, and all that was there were hotlines for gonorrhea. That was mm-hmm. about all the center was until HIV hit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Changed yes. the world. Yeah, it did. Um, and so she stepped into the fight, did this AIDS event, um, and then she formed uh, with a man named Dr. Michael Gottlieb. Mm, uh, it's my physician today. Yeah, He's yeah, my doctor with, today because he, he was too. Rock Hudson. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Because uh, he was Rock Hudson's doctor. Yes, he was. And uh, Elizabeth met him through Rock. It's important to say, because Elizabeth was, was said this so much, she did not get involved in the fight against AIDS because of Rock Hudson. Mm. She got involved before she found out he, was, he, mm. he had AIDS. Mm. And the reason I think she was continuously saying that is because she just wanted to help people that didn't matter to anyone. Mm. Rock Hudson did matter to people. And once Rock Hudson announced it, the Hollywood community did come around and recognize, like, this is something that's happening to, you know, our basically Hollywood royalty. And uh, so then they, they turned around and helped. But before that, Elizabeth couldn't get anybody to help. Yeah, no, very, very true. She went up to Capitol, she stormed Capitol Hill, didn't she? She went did. Up and she testified went, before the Congress? Absolutely. She went twice. Hmm. So the first time was in 86, and it was in front of the Senate Appropriations Committee. And she was, you know, trying to get them to fund AIDS for AIDS research because, you know, there was no funding then. Mm-hmm. And then the second time was to push through the Ryan White Care Act, and that was in 1990. And I just found something out. I read something that Dr. Matilda Krim, mm. uh, who, AMFAR, who they right. had formed AMFAR with, they there were two organizations that combined. So Gottlieb and, and uh, Elizabeth was the National AIDS Research Foundation. Matilda was doing something in New York. So they came together and formed AMFAR. But Matilda, I just read, I just read something that she was saying that, you know, it's really Elizabeth that got the Ryan White Care Act pushed through because 
they had something like they needed 60 votes. And I mean, should we say what the Ryan Care Act is? Yeah, for? I think uh, I mean it's a major source of funding even today for HIV and AIDS. Right, it's the government. Everyone's mechanism. looking for Ryan White money. Mm-hmm. Ryan White, who was a, a teenage kid in Indiana, Indiana, mm-hmm. who contracted HIV through a blood transfusion, and so he became the palatable face of HIV and AIDS. Right, but still, they wouldn't let him go to school. I mean, it was a terrible thing. Yeah, but. Um, uh, so they named this this the Ryan White Care Act, and that's how the government gave money through to the United States. PEPFAR is international, which Bush put into place. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, so she basically they had they had twenty votes. They needed sixty. Elizabeth said, "Look, I'll take a picture with any senator uh, who uh, will vote yes." <laughs> and or, or congressperson yeah. and and every one of them did of course and they all voted yes they had the 60 votes and the ryan white care act was passed and that's something specific that only elizabeth taylor, elizabeth could, taylor could have done we got to go to a quick commercial break when we come back we'll be talking more with tim mendelson and zach marquez about the incredible work of elizabeth taylor and her foundation here on channel q this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Back, guys, we're having a wonderful discussion about a woman that I cherish and love, and you should too, the Dame Elizabeth Taylor, an international hero, heroine to the LGBT community for her work on HIV and AIDS. And in studio, we've got Tim Mendelson and Zach Marquez, who are both here from the foundation. Welcome back, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Tim, what were we talking about right before we went to commercial? You wanted to mention something. Well, I just wanted to also talk about, you know, Reagan. Uh, oh, yeah. Because that, you know, we had a, a There's a Hollywood connection right there, right? Right. Yeah. And she knew the Reagans. And and so, you know, Reagan wasn't talking about AIDS. Not until and 87. When Elizabeth actually, because she was pushing them, uh, Nancy and and Ronnie, whatever, uh uh, to do something about AIDS, to talk about AIDS. And it was Elizabeth that finally got him to talk about AIDS in 87 at that Potomac dinner. I yep. mean, that was totally Elizabeth. Yep. Yeah. And at the time, there were 100,000, over 100,000 dead gay men in the country. And he hadn't said a word about AIDS. It's just horrific to think about. Today. Well, it was Elizabeth was tr- always trying to help the marginalized, yep. you know, the most marginalized. And at that time, uh, and still in, in, you know, in certain areas today, but at that time, you know, AIDS was completely in the gay community. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 the, and being gay was different then. Yeah. Uh, it's much easier today. So I'm going to bring in a millennial voice because Zach Marquez here is a millennial. Oh, hey. Like my producer, he's a millennial. That, as well, you're both that millen- I am. millennials. So uh, you worked for the found- What do you do at the foundation, Zach? Uh, I manage communications and fundraising. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm so glad you're here because I'm guessing you were you were born in like 92. So yes. you weren't around. <laughs> Tim and I are talking about a period of time before you were even walking on the planet. Mm-hmm. And so your perspective, it must be, I, I'm just curious, is it one of historical reference or? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, God, I started learning about like really digging into HIV when I was about 19 because my first partner was living with HIV but didn't tell me for six months. Mm. So that's the experience that really brought HIV close to home for me. Right. Um, and so then I just kind of dove into research. And I was uh, at UCLA at the time, and I found a student group that was uh, an arts-based sexual education troupe that I joined for three years. So... Um, I ended up turning my major at UCLA into arts activism and HIV activism as my focus. Oh, wow. So I studied, you know, uh, as much as I can, you know, from the beginning. Yeah. And what we thought the, you know, where 80s, the early 80s was the beginning was actually, you know, late 60s and 70s. There were cases popping up that they have now identified as Now they can figure it out. Yeah. yeah, and then, uh, you know, working with the AIDS Foundation now and learning from people like Tim and hearing his stories and um, other people that I've met in the space and going to conferences, it's really how I, I arm myself with information. And um, it's really great to be a young person in the space um, because 
we're the ones that one day will lead um, uh, this fight. Yeah, after a world without AIDS. I am still daydreaming of the morning I wake up and the headline, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, AIDS over. It's gonna happen. I, I hope happen. so, I hope to be able to see it. Yeah, yeah. we have the tools. It's yeah. just, you know, we need the political will and we need to erase stigma and discrimination. So the, the foundation, does it focus on research or also continuing education or both? Well, let's talk about uh, just for a second because Elizabeth formed Amfar, co-founded Amfar in '85, right. and then American in Foundation for AIDS Research. The, Amfar, yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Well, not, I think. Yeah, I, I think they changed the name to the Foundation for AIDS. A research, foundation AIDS Research, something okay. like that. All right. But um, in 1991, because that was focused on you know finding a cure and medicines for people to live, right. Amfar, and it became this huge thing, uh, a huge organization, and Elizabeth wanted to do something that was really focused on direct direct case oh, sorry i can't speak now direct patient care and prevention education so she did this this just on her own uh she had one man helping her go through the funding request but the elizabeth taylor aids foundation so she started that in 91 she paid the overhead and so and she just would go out and raise money, and it was easy. She never stopped raising money for Amfar or being involved with Amfar, but she wanted to do something that kind of could just be her own thing. Sometimes when organizations get very big, there's a lot of politics and right. other things right. involved, and, uh, and it was closer to her heart. But um, since she passed, you know, we've had to reinvent a little bit what ETF does because we don't have Elizabeth now. So, uh, you know, like we're gonna, we, we have fundraisers, we, um, I don't know if that's a good place to go right now, but. Uh, yeah, no, um, I mean, today, uh, we're still very much focused on uh, direct care and services. Mm -hmm. uh, we're a granting organization, so we provide oh. funding to programs all over the world that do direct uh, patient care as well as prevention education. Um, so, uh, our international focus is in Malawi, which Tim just visited this summer. Wow. Um, Malawi sure was, was so hard hit in Africa. Malawi, and, and, and there's actual progress in Malawi, right? There is. There's okay. actual progress in Malawi. And, and so in 2008, Elizabeth had the, the idea to put, to create these mobile units that could go into the, the hard hit places. So uh, this man, Bill Meisenheimer, he did some research in Malawi. Elizabeth's criteria was, um, the highest incidence of HIV, the least access to resources and, and care, and, um, and the poorest. And this part of Malawi called Malanji is where she started these vans and they go into the villages and help these people. And, uh, and I just went. Uh -huh. So I got to see it firsthand for the first time and uh, it was amazing. And these people literally said, like, if you guys don't, if you guys aren't, weren't funding this work, we would all die. Yeah, they, mean, they don't is, have Chavada. They don't have a choice prep no, or pep. Or, they they don't have other. running water yeah. or electricity. Right, right. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so, so true. So, so you true. can really see the impact and, uh, and, and literally saving lives. Totally. Mm -hmm. And um, so in... You know, contrast to that, here in the United States, here at home, um, we do uh, a ton of a ton of work funding programs all over the states. Particularly uh, in the U.S. South, we have a focus on, um, which is where the highest rates are now yes. of HIV. Um, so, uh, you know, we, like Tim said, we've without Elizabeth, we're really fundraisers, and we really have to raise every dollar we can to give to these programs that that we fund. Mm -hmm. um, so there are actually two fundraisers we have coming up that we did just want to quickly talk about. Yeah, we're about. coming to the end of our segment. So tell us about your events and then your website as well. Okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so uh, quickly, I just want to let everyone know that um, we actually came to uh, AIDS Walk Los Angeles because of the LGBT community three years ago when the LGBT resource group from Live Nation and Ticketmaster called Pride Nation reached out and wanted us to partner. And so for three years, um, we've participated in AIDS Walk, which is really the first time we've stepped into the community and done a community-based like fundraiser like mm -hmm. that, which is amazing. And, you know, three years later, we're, we were the top fundraising team last year, and this year we're in the lead right now. So it's really exciting. Um, 
And if anyone can, you know, wants to sign up or virtually walk or, or donate, you can do so by going to AIDSWalkLA.org and looking up Team ETAF. And what's the, what's the foundation's website? Uh, that is ETAF.org. So Elizabeth Taylor AIDS Foundation, ETAF, Elizabeth yeah. Taylor AIDS Foundation.org. Yeah, e- either one will take you there. Awesome. Zach Marquez, Tim Mendelson, thank you guys for coming on and sharing uh, the work of Elizabeth Taylor. And gang, if you're in the Abbey, you will notice there is a portrait of Elizabeth over the fireplace when you pass her portrait genuflect and say a prayer and thank god for elizabeth taylor when we come back we'll be doing crystal meth and fentanyl overdoses with david vanderveld and jimmy paul mary here on channel q have a gay day i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Eddie Money passed away uh, this morning. Eddie, of course, known for his song, Two Tickets to Paradise, a legend on the Sunset Strip in West Hollywood. And uh, historically, one of the first rockers to overdose on fentanyl in 1981 is part of his life story. And that is going to be the focus of our next discussion. And we are very blessed to have uh, Jimmy Palmieri, the founder of the Tweakers Project, uh, here on the show with us. And also... David Vandervelt uh, from Awakening Recovery uh, is also in studio with us. Welcome, guys. Glad to have you both. Hey, John. Thanks to have us. So let's talk a little bit about what the issue is, because it's uh, it's crystal meth, but it's crystal meth laced with deadly uh, fentanyl that's causing all the deaths in the gay community. I mean, yeah. how would you describe it, Jim? You know, it, it, it we need to open the conversation, and 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 it's happening now. There's there's uh, a killer at the party is what the new the new campaign is and it you're doing a drug that you have no clue you're doing so you may think you're doing just meth which is bad enough okay or, or just coke or or some type of opioid but it has uh, fentanyl in it or carfentanyl and the tiniest little bit can kill you uh, you know what what could kill you or what could kill me no one knows so the people that are cutting it in and putting it in, they have no clue what amount is going to harm someone. And we've, you personally and myself personally, we've known dozens of people that this has happened to. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere soon. And and why do they put it in the first place? To think it's, it's a higher high or a more potent drug or? You know, deal, dealers are always looking to cut, uh, you know, with a cheaper ingredient. This is a synthetic. This is a little bit cheaper. And they also want to get customers addicted quickly. But they have no clue what amount is going to keep their customers coming back and what's going to make them lose their customers. Right. To and, death. To yeah, death. Yeah. To death. David, at Awakening Recovery, um, are most of your uh, people who come to live in your facility, are, is it alcohol? Is it meth? Is it both? Or I would say that most of the guys that come into the house are polysubstance use addicts um, and a lot of the time it's heroin and meth. Uh, that's becoming more and more the case. Mm. Sometimes alcohol too, um, but less so, I would say, as time goes by, especially with people in their 20s. Mm-hmm. The percentage of LGBT people who are alcoholic or drug addicts is significantly higher than the general population. Reasons why? A whole lot of reasons why. Do you have any uh, opinion on that? I mean, I th- I think addiction is, you know, epigenetic, meaning that there are some genetic predispositions to addiction. There's also environmental factors that go into it, which is the new, not so new anymore <laughs> field of epigenetics. Um, but I think especially for the LGBT community, although I would say it's also true for um, other addicts, is there's a lot of trauma, you know, in their backgrounds. And I think for the LGBT community, Q community, you know, that's even probably more so the case. I mean, if you look at the suicidality rates and the transgender community is even higher than the, you know, 
LGB part of the LGBT um, mm-hmm. part of it. And I think it is a lot because of trauma, you know, a lot of growing up and being um, stigmatized, discriminated against, you know, emotional trauma, sexual trauma, physical trauma, you know, all of those things encourage you to want to um, escape, mm-hmm. you know, and I think a, a lot of times there's also co-occurring mental health issues that um, derive out of all of those things I just said. And sometimes uh, illicit drugs are used to self-medicate, you know, aside from what would be prescribed to you normally for a mental health issue. And a lot of times when people are younger, they're not properly diagnosed for the mental health issues. They start using illicit drugs and then those develop their own issues on their own. And then not only do they have the co-occurring mental health issue, they also have the, the addiction and, um, and they feed off of each other. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most painful things for anybody is to watch a loved one, a lover, a partner, a family member, a child go through addiction. And and I've watched people bang their heads up against the wall like he just won't stop. Uh, I, he's hiding it from me. He's not telling the truth. He keeps saying he's sober, but there's evidence that he's still using. I just don't know what to do. Uh, Jimmy, when those people show up at your door, what, what do you tell the partner or husband or wife or parent about what they should do? You know, it, it sounds tough. You know, I've lived through it several times. Um, you have to take care of yourself. You you have you can't help anyone else if you're not helping yourself. Everyone has their path, and I, and and this isn't tough love. This is just fact. You can't prevent someone from using. Um, hopefully, just hopefully, they're going to see that they can take a different path. Um, but you know, John, self help is the best medication. And sadly, there's nothing that you can say that I can say that's going to make someone stop. Get between him and his drug, you or just can't. her and her drug. You know, in couples, there's even though even monogamous couples, there's someone they're cheating with, and it's the drug. You mm. know, I, I I always look at the drug as the mistress or the other guy. Mm. And, wow. You know, we got to go to commercial break. When we come back, we continue our conversation about meth, fentanyl, overdose, and recovery in the LGBT community here on Sidebar with John Duran on Channel Q. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Welcome back, guys. We're talking to Jimmy Palmieri, founder of the Tweakers Project, and David Vandervelt from Awakening Recovery about drug use and meth and fentanyl and recovery in the LGBT world. Let's talk a bit about you know the connection between meth and sex because that's for a lot of at least gay and bisexual men and trans people that seems to be the connection is the the sex and meth in the same place, and uh, and, and it even overlays into sex workers using it as a, a drug to stay awake for days and make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what are you guys seeing out there? Well, I would say that you know meth is unique in the drug world because you know it, it all they all feed off the dopamine center in the brain and you know cocaine and heroin are in like the 400 percent you know of what like sex would be like 200 percent so w- with coke and and heroin it can be like 400 percent but with meth unlike anything else in the world it jacks your dopamine levels up to over a thousand percent oh wow there is nothing like it on the planet that occurs naturally so being the pleasure center of the brain there's always typically a huge connection between sex and methamphetamine and both in terms of sex triggering meth use and you know meth triggering you know high-risk sex behaviors um they really go hand in hand in my experience Mm, mm. and then the sex workers jimmy what what are you seeing out there with sex workers so you know I, i used to be the the um chair of the of the youth subcommittee and the gay and lesbian youth subcommittee and a lot of the youth were using meth to stay awake on the street the ones that were tossed away and living on the streets of la they were using it to stay awake so that when they fell asleep their their belongings weren't stolen or they weren't raped or they weren't harmed and so that's when i started to see so many younger folks using meth 
and a lot of them turn to survival sex, sex for sex work for money to survive, to eat, just to get by. And this this started to become part of their their ritual, and it became tribal. And um, as our friend is saying, it it it's a very libidinous drug, so it allows folks to continue to have sex, but most times not have an orgasm. Mm. So they can they, you know they they can continue and have sex with multiple multiple partners, not have an orgasm, and the abrasions that they have from having sex, uh, unsafe sex, unplanned sex. Uh, showed us a, a rise in not only HIV, but a meteoric rise in gonorrhea, syphilis, and chlamydia. Luckily, because of PrEP and other things, we're seeing a decrease in HIV, but everything else is sky high. Yeah, and I think long-term the problem is that people lose their minds. I mean, the, the mental corrosion of the brain that occurs with long-term meth use, and then eventually you lose your teeth mm-hmm. and you lose your beauty, and it's not pretty. Mm-hmm. But let's be realistic. We know that you know if people want help and they want to stop, there's a whole lot of uh, resources. We'll get into that in a second. But people who are not going to stop using meth, uh, the city of West Hollywood and other communities coming up with uh, fentanyl testing strips uh, as a form of harm reduction, uh, can you, Jimmy, can you describe how these strips work? So I'm showing you one right now, and it looks like any other, like a pregnancy test or, you know, what, what we call a, a, a pee test where someone would test their urine, and if it was a dirty urine, they wouldn't be able to stay into a rehab. Um, these are, if, if, it's, if it's two lines on it when you test your drug, it's safe. If it's one line, it's not safe. Or, so you or, put your dr- part of your drug in water? In water. In water. And how, how do you know how much drug to put and how much water? It's, it, there's like no recipe. Just put a little tiny bit of water and, and sprinkle some of your drug in, stir it up, and let it sit. Um, and then take it out and let it sit for 20 seconds, 25 seconds or so, and you'll start to see the lines coming. It, um, is it foolproof? Nothing's foolproof. It's dam- you know harm reduction, damage control. They're going to use, and I have zero judgment on anyone's use, but I want them to stay alive if they're going to right. use. Right. We don't mind if you party and play. Just don't wake up dead. It's, it's none of our business. Don't wake up. Right. Yeah, yeah. So these fentanyl strips, you put them in water, it comes out. If it's got two lines, it means it's been tainted or laced with fentanyl, and then you know not to use this drug, right? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, one line is positive, two lines are negative. So ah, okay. So uh, it, it – and they're, they're free. We're giving them for free. The city of West Hollywood has provided – um, we gave 7000 away at Sizzle, the Sober Carnival, and the APLA will be giving, I think, 10000 or 5000 or 10000 for free. Right, and the LGBT you, Center has them also, yes, right? Yes, you can just go get them. No questions asked, John. Right. So the, uh, people who are listening around the country and your other 27 cities besides Los Angeles, talk to your LGBT centers and your HIV foundations to get these fentanyl testing strips. People are going to use. Let's not have them die. Uh, from their drug use. David, if somebody does want to get help, well, let's talk a bit about recovery and resources. If somebody's finally bottomed out, whatever that means, jobless, homeless, familyless, uh, soulless, that's where I bottomed out, soulless. Uh, wherever one bottoms out, uh, what happens then? Well, I mean, you, you're talking about the end result. You know, I think, you know, to Jimmy's point, you know, these harm reduction techniques that people are using, whether it's fentanyl strips or safe injection sites. I mean, as a harm reduction technique in helping people not overdose, I think that's one issue. You know, abstinence-based recovery is is another issue. You know, a lot of times the ultimate goal is abstinence. That's certainly what I believe in. But that's not everybody's goal all the time. And I think that needs to be recognized as well. Um, I, I think ultimately if we believe in the disease concept of addiction, that it is a fatal progressive disease that over any period of time it will get worse, never better, then there needs to be a long-term approach to recovery. I think the problem right now with the um, pharmaceutical companies and with um, the insurance-based treatment modalities out there is that they are more focused on 30, 60, 90-day recovery solutions. And you can't change core beliefs and behaviors in 30, 60, or 90 days when you've been, you know, doing hardcore drugs for 5, 10, 15 years. That's, it's just not possible. Hmm. It's a good introduction, but it doesn't allow you to really achieve what I would call more longer-term recovery, one, two, five years plus. Hmm. And I think, you know, if it's going to get better in recovery in the community, we need to be focusing on 
people's long-term recovery and not just short-term fixes. Hmm. Look, we have it. We have an opioid crisis. People are overdosing and dying. You know, uh, solutions like naloxone to bring people back from overdoses is really important. Um, I think other forms of MAT medically assisted treatment like buprenorphine and methadone based treatments, again, are good for detox and, and uh, extended detox. But with 80% non-compliance rates and 80% relapse rates off of buprenorphine and methadone. Buprenorphine is the most misused prescription opioid currently. <laughs> so the pharmaceutical companies are making a lot of money. It is good for a short-term fix, but again, it doesn't really achieve for most people a long-term solution to their recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction. So I think really, you know, the modalities I don't want to plug awakening recovery too much, but you know, like awakening recovery that has a year plus long process is really what's needed. All of the NIH studies show the longer you can keep somebody in the same place doing the same thing with the same people, the better the outcomes. Mm. The problem is, is there isn't a uh, profit structure, corporate structure, business model in place to support those longer term, term modalities. So most of the ones out there that do a year plus processes are nonprofit, like Awakening Recovery. Mm -hmm. And it shouldn't be that way. Mm -hmm. it, we shouldn't be needed. <laughs> yeah. You know, there should be a way to find a way to get people engaged in a long term process that's based on connection and community that doesn't have to be nonprofit. Right. And I think it's possible. We just haven't gotten there yet. You know, when Bill W. and Dr. Bob started Alcoholics Anonymous AA, you know, they were dealing with chronic alcoholism. But it seems to me like meth just takes people down so much faster, so much more quickly. Like you go from just trying the drug to complete addict uh, in such a short period of time. Well, you bring up a really great point. I mean, the di the damage that methamphetamine does to the brain is just as bad as alcoholism. I mean, when you think people have wet brain and such, but when you look at brain scans of people when they first get off meth, you know, and then you look at the brain scans a year to 18 months later, it takes a year to 18 months for the brain to heal from the organic damage that methamphetamine does, mm -hmm. which is why, again, I think a longer term approach to recovery is so important because up until that point, you're still dealing with a damaged brain physically. Right, right, wow. People want more information on uh, either from either of your websites or how to reach you, how, how can we reach you? David, how, do, how can I get more information about Awakenings Recovery? Uh, AwakeningRecovery.org or where we have a Facebook page and we are also on Instagram. Okay, and Jimmy, Tweakers Project? or Go how to should... the Tweakers Project on Facebook. It's uh, the, T-W-E-A-K-E-R-S project on Facebook. There's around 7,000 members right now worldwide, and it's a 24-7 support system. Anytime you go on, there's somebody's chatting, so you'll be able to find help. That's awesome, guys. Yeah. Thank you both for doing God's work. Thanks, John. Getting Thanks, people John. clean Appreciate and sober. It. We love that. When we come back, we'll have concluding remarks at the end of our September the 13th show. All right, guys. Talk to you soon here on Channel Q. Jared Hill just walked in the studio. He's coming up next. Yes. Hey, Jared. Drop the subject's coming up in, what is this, nine minutes? Yes. Now. We're to what you and Allie have got ready to go. That's yes. Awesome. We're going to be talking about the presidential debates that happened last night. Um, I know that you were busy last night. I was being at the fabulous. Hollywood Bowl watching American in Paris. How was that? <laughs> Uber game. It was, I was going to say, it's probably gay. better than the debates were last That's night. That's what I can everybody tell you said. That. They said it was really disappointing, the debate. So my, my nerddom slash gaydom, like, I was, I was blown away by their production design. The set was like a gorgeous, enormous set that ABC did for an event that was going to last three hours. Um, and I was like, <laughs> they spent a lot of money on that. Um, but I, I didn't feel like there was just a clear, like, front runner that would just, like, knock the whole thing thing out of the park right. I did feel like Elizabeth Warren continues to show like she's the candidate to watch she's so smart I think Joe she's Biden so smart Joe Biden continues to show the cracks in the foundation yeah um, he just always has like a moment where you're like wait what did you just say or like huh you know like <laughs> yeah. that kind of a thing um, I know you're a Kamala fan I am yeah I'm supporting I, Kamala yeah I thoroughly enjoy Kamala Harris I haven't like I haven't figured out who my candidate is yet, but I genuinely think if Kamala Harris can stick it out, because, you know, she's taken a little bit of a dip, but she did have a surge. Um, if she can stick it out and and really, like, be a viable candidate and not, you know, screw anything up, like, no major gaffes, I think that her and Elizabeth Warren would run on a ticket together. Wow. I think it's going to be Biden and Warren. I See, think, I, I don't. Think, I think Biden pulls it out. I just think he hangs in there, damaged and beaten, and brought, I, and he gets Elizabeth on. Got to have a woman on the ticket. Yeah, I just got to have a woman on. Yeah, ticket. 
I my dream ticket was Stacey Abrams in Georgia to bring in the South with Joe Biden. Yes. See, yeah. I I think that Elizabeth Warren continues to show us that she's the best candidate that's like in the top of the she's seat. Smart. She's smart. So she's so smart. smart. And like I, the tweet that I, I sent out last night, we're going to talk about this on our show. Um, I, I always live tweet these events, so it's always just fun to just kind of like go all night. And I was tweeting about I was tweeting about her all night, and then. She had this moment where she talked about being a public school teacher, and she mentioned being a special needs teacher. And I, th- and that is when the light bulb went off for me. I was like, that's what it is about Elizabeth Warren. Mm. It's like a hyper-patient, ever like concerned, like really passionate about everything that she's done. But she always talks in a way that is really indicative of someone who's been listening. Yeah. And so I true. enjoy that about her. Again, I'm not sure that she's my candidate, but yeah. I do think that she's crushing it out there. Anybody. Whoever gets the Democratic nomination, I'm behind. Yeah. I don't, even the ones I don't want. I'm not a big Bernie fan. Even if Bernie's a candidate, I'm jump behind him. Okay, yeah. so Bernie Sanders. I think Bernie Sanders has got to stop. Like, period. <laughs> Breathing. Like, <No. laughs> like he, he's just like, Bernie Sanders in opening statements last night Within five seconds, and I'm not exaggerating, that is not hyperbole. He's already yelling. His voice is like hoarse, and he's like doing the thing that he does all the time. And it's like, why are you yelling, bruh? It's an opening statement. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, no one's even said anything to you. And he did that all night. And Mm. it's just like, I cannot take that from a president for four years. Yeah. And we've already done one with vulgarity. Exactly. And like, Bernie Sanders just isn't inspiring. He just seems angry, and yeah. you know, I just I just couldn't take that from him. I mean, him. I love Pete, Mayor Pete. I do love him. I just yeah. I just don't think it's gonna happen. But. I I think Pete Buttigieg is gonna probably end up in some kind of a cabinet, cabinet. position. He'd be a great cabinet. Member. Yeah, yes. I, the people last night that were interesting to me, Amy Klobuchar was on the end of the. She was in the Marianne Williamson speech, so okay. I'm seat okay. all the way on the fringe, and I think um, I, I tweeted something like. Amy Klobuchar hired all the right people to give her the best lines and to give her like great policy and points and all that, but she's the problem. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because the delivery always fails, mm-hmm. and the 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 passion in it is just always like, oh, yeah. You know, um, I thought Julian Castro had a couple of moments last night where he really came after Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and it was clear that he was like uh, Joe Biden was trying to back away from the de- deportations from the Obama administration because right. obviously there were a lot of deportations. Yeah. Um, Julian Castro, uh, I mean, excuse me, the the moderator last night, her name's Lindsay Davis, who, if anyone won the debate last night, it was Lindsay Davis, because she was asking some hard-ass questions. Lindsay Davis was coming for that ass. And so uh, she asked Joe Biden, like, you know, where were you with all those different... I think it was uh, Jorge Ramos that asked, like, where were you with all these deportations? How did you make this happen? And, like, where are you? And, like, he really backed away from Barack Obama in that moment. And then Julian Castro, they went to him next, and Jorge Ramos asked him a question about being part of the Obama administration. And Julian Castro said, like, you know, Joe Biden, you want to embrace Barack Obama every single time you open your mouth. But then as soon as something comes up that's negative, you want to completely distance yourself from him. Yeah, I read, like, the, I read you that. You can't do paper. that. Yeah, I read that. It was a, it was a, it was a moment. Uh, so, I yeah. want to hear about your superstitions on Friday the 13th. Because Friday the 13th. Yeah, no black cat should walk in front of you. Don't walk under a ladder. Don't break a mirror. So I'm really weary, wary of cats. They, I've always <laughs> been uncomfortable with cats in general. So like that superstition was probably big in the sauce but like i've never been superstitious huh. i've you, never believed know, in superstition like, like if you have something superstitious happening you're supposed to knock on wood we don't even have like this is particle no, board what is this, this? Is particle board <laughs> not knock on wood that comes from the ancient christian belief of the cross of christ being wood oh uh, that's the the attribution if you knocked on wood it was to like summon jesus to help you out is that true that's where knock on wood comes from john and duran i feel like you just make I, stuff up I, I, that I cannot be right that is that true that that's is perfect. absolutely true okay and the 13 the number 13 being unlucky represents judas the apostle who betrayed jesus was the 13th apostle and so Where that, do you get this stuff oh, from? I'm just old. I'm just old. This I is read. really good history. <laughs> well, that's where it comes from, the, the number 13. And Friday was supposed to be the day that Jesus died. So right. Friday the 13th became the day that... ultimate evil. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's all an ancient Christian belief stuff. But, you know. I had no idea that these things had anything to do with Christianity. Yeah, Me yeah. neither. Yeah, there you go. Well, right. you're, but you're Muslim. Yeah, you must, you but... must have some superstitions in there somewhere. Eh, not really. <laughs> you, were, you were saying that in the Muslim faith there are some like superstition kind of things. You were talking about clipping fingernails or oh, something? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's that thing where um, 
don't clip your fingernails or toenails completely once the sun sets. Like, that's not a thing. That's Otherwise, you're hygiene. just going to have some... Yeah, I guess, you know? We have lights, though. Wake up squeaky clean in the morning and then cut your nails, I guess. Do, do you know why? I have no idea. That's so interesting. Yeah, I. Uh, but I heard it and I said, okay, well, I... Whatever. Do you actually practice it? I will sometimes in the back of my mind think about it and, and I'll say, oh, maybe I should save it for the next day. But it's not something like if I do do it at nighttime that I'm going to be freaking out and bugging out the whole time now. <laughs> so that's such a specific thing. Like, don't I've walk never under a ladder. Just seems really practical. That, yeah, you know, don't. Yeah. Something's gonna fall in your head. If you break a going. mirror, isn't yes. that a bad thing? That is bad luck. When I lived in Atlanta, uh, I went to school and worked in Atlanta. I was there for six years, and I, that was the first time I ever encountered people who would not split the pole when you're walking down the street. Uh. So if there's like a street sign or a power pole or whatever, like you have to both walk on the same side of the street. And I'm on the same side of the pole, and I was like, "What? What's happening?" And like after a while, you notice <laughs> that people like will not split it, oh, or funny. if I split it, they'd be like, they would literally go back and walk around the pole to not yeah. split it. And I was like, "What is the deal?" And they're like, "That's bad luck." Or good luck if you see a penny, pick it up. That's supposed to be good luck. See, I or, always, yeah. I, whenever I see a penny on the ground, I always hear like the voice of God, the all the universe, like. Oh, so you you've got enough that you don't need to pick up money off the ground. Something to sing you exactly. Or a rabbit's foot supposed to be good luck, except for the rabbit. Okay, so where's that from, John Durant? <laughs> that, yes, don't know. good point. There was no rabbits in ancient Israel. I I'm going to say, no was there? There's got to be some biblical <laughs> reference, John. You need I, to know. I'm going to look it up. <laughs> well, it turns out the rabbit's foot is actually I don't know. I'm just making. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. <laughs> All right, guys, stay tuned for Jared Alley. They're coming up next. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be with you all next week on the sidebar. Thanks, Here. John. On Channel Q.